Jersey in the United States of America. I'm on the North American continent, on the planet Earth, in a Milky Way galaxy, swimming in the great ocean of space. I'm safe and sound on the very edge of the Milky Way. Auspicious beginning. Sure, the talk show. You know, people phone in and make a beef. Oh, what about? Whatever happens to bug you, that's what you talk about. Sometimes he agrees with the caller, other times he sets him straight. Hi, you're listening to Chris T on... Wait, you're listening to me at the moment, but... Mr. T, not the Mr. T, but Chris T will be along and I'm with the What I mean is, the programme that this is part of is... You get the idea. He's he's quite a sort of like a uh, a wisecracker. I, I love those guys. I know they 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 laugh in the face of adversity, but they they always end up at square one. I love that. <laughs> yeah, except <for> some cheats. <laughs> He embodies the dementia of a nihilistic generation. He's a star. Hi, I was wondering if this was the same Chris T who does um, the radio show. Because um, if it is, 
I think your show is really great. Um, but if it isn't, um, I'm sorry to have bothered you. You know, Chris, the, the thing about being upset is that besides it sometimes being a turn on to women, is that it's not a state that you really want to be in when you make an important decision. Hey, it's me, Chris T. Back on thehoundnyc.com, where every Sunday you get a hound howl at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, followed by Mark and Miriam, the doo-wop chop-chop, with the uh, crash in the party at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. And uh, this show, Fridays at 6 p.m., replays Tuesdays at 6 p.m. I haven't been around for weeks now. Can't even tell you when the last brand spanking new aerial view was. But uh, I know what it was about. I went to the Brimfield Antique Show. When the fuck was that? It was a while back. Sorry for cursing so soon. I thought it would come later in the program. Oh, well, fuck it. I'm 59. I'm going to curse my brains out from now until I drop. Which at this rate, who knows when that might be. Jesus. We live in some trying times, don't we? You got uh, the fuckwits and uh, QAnon. And then the other fuckwits who are down with them. QAnon adjacent. Sweet T and I, the missus. I call her Sweet T. That's what the uh, truck drivers named her all those years ago when I was doing trucking radio for a living. Yes, that's right. I did trucking radio for a living. Can you believe it? Sometimes I can't believe it. I look back on that and I think, what the hell was that all about? But uh, Sweet T and I were watching four hours in the Capitol or four hours at the Capitol, whatever it's called, the new documentary that's on HBO We saw it on HBO Max, because Lord knows if you don't have five streaming services, you're missing out on something, right? Streaming, streaming, everything is streaming now. Let's see, we have Apple Plus or Apple TV or whatever the hell it is. We've got Disney for The Mandalorian. By the way, my guest uh, in just a few minutes, W. Earl Brown, was on The Mandalorian not long ago. A reunion of sorts with uh, Timothy Oliphant. And I, I don't know if I've talked to Earl since then. I've talked to Earl a bunch of times, both here on Aerial View and when I was at Sirius XM. And I've met Earl a bunch of times, and I like to think of him as a friend. Um, one of those friends that I have out in Hollywood who... Uh, does live action. I have another friend, Kaz, who does animation. So I didn't feel that I should have that conversation with Kaz that I wanted to have in light of the Alec Baldwin incident on the set of the movie Rust. But uh, W. Earl Brown seems like the right person to have that conversation with. And we're going to have that conversation conversation in just a, in just a few. We're also going to get caught up since we haven't talked in a while. But back to the uh, fuckwits and the documentary about the January 6th insurrection. We were watching it and um, Sweet Tea and I, and, and halfway through I started to fall into this deep, deep well of despair. I just thought, what are we ever going to do about this? What are we ever going to do about these people? And I can pinpoint the moment when it happened. They, they have one guy, and kudos, I wish I knew off the top of my head, who put the documentary together. I would credit them. I like to credit people for their work. They managed to get this one guy who went viral, like 4.7 million views on YouTube of him smoking pot under the Capitol Dome. And I forget this fuckwit's name, but... He starts talking about the, uh, was it, 800,000 children who were abducted every year in the United States and forced into sex slavery. 
And I just went, oh, God. People believe this shit. They really believe this shit. They really believe this shit. They believe that uh, there's a ring of pedophiles, uh, and they're all Democrats, of course, Democratic pedophiles, who are abducting children and forcing them to become sex slaves. Eight hundred thousand children a year, by the way. You and you hear that and you go, "What? Really?" I just, I, I, I can't wait for this phase, whatever it is that we're in, to be over. And the documentary again, I don't remember if it's four hours in the Capitol, four hours at the Capitol. Ends with this uh, woman who uh, was married to a D.C. Metropolitan Police Officer who took his life a few days after this thing happened. Did I say days? I meant hours. Four hours in the Capitol. And she says that Donald Trump has blood on his hands, but so do many other people. By the way, it's at four hours at the Capitol on HBO on demand available until Thursday November 25th and they're showing it tomorrow at 4:10 p.m. that's your next chance to see it if you've got uh, the non-streaming version of HBO but well worth your time very grim uh viewing but worth your time produced and directed by Jamie Roberts edited by Will Grayburn executive produced by Dan Reed there we go credited you mothers are now credited fascinating look at what went on as a mob of uh, 15,000 morons stormed the Capitol building and got inside and uh, just just incredible that that uh, we we've had to live through all of this this time of Trump this time of insanity and uh, I, I mean, I just draw the line. I, I like you, have lost friends over this whole thing. When you find out that they, 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 they like that guy and they trust that guy and they believe that guy and they follow that guy and they do everything that that guy tells them to do. And I, I just am, my mind still boggles over his outsized influence based on what he is, which is just a corrupt, immoral pile of human garbage. So let's see if uh, W. Earl uh, Brown, w. Earl uh, Brown w. is going to join us. Hey, Earl, is that you? Yeah, it is me. Hey, thanks for uh, being here on the program. I was just talking about uh, the documentary on HBO called Four Hours at the Capitol. Oh, I Have don't you, know that. You don't know that one? It's... Uh, about the January 6th insurrection. I was bemoaning the times that we're living in. When, uh, you know, they have one guy in this documentary who, who talks about the 800,000 children that are abducted every year and forced into sex slavery by uh, Democratic pedophiles. And uh, I listen to that stuff and I, I go into a pit of despair. <laughs> it's, and then it's hard to climb out. Uh, how about you, Earl? How have you been? I've been good. Things are hectic. I'm, I'm getting a, a weird feedback on this. I'm hearing myself. Oh, okay. So uh, let me see if I can uh, do anything about that. My, my earbuds are not working. They're not working too hot? Maybe. 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 Whoa. That was getting... How about, how about now? How does it sound now? How do you sound? How do I sound? I hear you. You hear me? I, I'm, I'm echoing. You're echoing back to yourself. Yes. Uh, you know, let's do this. You keep talking, and I'll try something on my end to see if it ends that. I don't think okay. it's going to work, but I'm going to try it anyway. Because uh, it, it probably would have to be adjusted on, on your end. But let me do this. Is that any better? I don't know. Let me see. Uh, can I hear myself now? 
I know. I hear myself. It's good. All is good. All right. So the echo's gone. Then the echo is Damn. gone. My earbuds still aren't working. What? Well, wait. There's something came up there. Um. All right. All right. We're good. I think we you are. You can hear yes. me. I can hear I can you. Hear you. All right. Good. Um. And I was trying to get caught up because it's been a while. It's been a moment since we uh, we talked. So you you were you were saying things are pretty hectic, pretty busy for you right now. It's uh, you know it's gotten that way in the last few days. I I spent the summer in Toronto. I was doing a, a show for Apple Plus about Hurricane Katrina. Ironically, um, I have to go to New Orleans to finish that, but that's just a couple of days. But I'm going to be going back and forth to uh, New York to work on uh, another show that's uh that's filming there in the city oh nice so. when, when will that be um you know what i don't know when it's coming on okay. and i don't know how much of it that i'm allowed to talk about <laughs> all right i'm just saying we're gonna have you over to the house when you're there we're right in weehawken we're just across the river you take a seven minute ferry ride boom there you go we'll make you some dinner well, that, that made me think today i don't have my itinerary yet i don't know mm. where i'm staying where they're putting me up hmm. so uh as soon as I find that out, I'll get back to you. Probably at the Howard Johnson's in Times Square. Who knows? I don't think there is a Howard Johnson's there anymore, so I don't think that's where they would put you up. But uh, congratulations on staying busy because, you know, with the COVID-19, you were sidelined for a while, weren't you? Everything was clamped down. Nothing was happening. Yeah, I, um, I had actually just finished a role in Sandy Bullock's movie. It's now called The Unforgivable. It was an untitled when when we actually shot it. Um, And that was right when the world shut down. I I finished like at the end of February. So um, they had to complete the film, you know, gosh, later that summer. It's coming out really soon. I've been seeing trailers on it. Is this um, would this be and, the first thing she's directed or has she directed? Oh, no, she's not. She didn't direct it. Oh, she OK. Just started it. okay. Um, she developed it with her Netflix deal and um, and it, it's coming soon. And then the next thing I did was uh, in October of last year, No Man of God was here in Los Angeles. It was a, a ultra low budget indie film. It's it's out now. Um, it's in certain cities and it's in, playing in uh, on pay per view. No Man um, of God. It's called. Yeah. It's, okay. It's um, uh, it's another Ted Bundy story, but it's a really fascinating and really well done one. Um, Elijah Wood produced it and stars in it. Um, and it's basically about the relationship between Hagemeyer, the profiler and, and Bundy himself. It's mostly a two-hander. I'm the, the prison warden who, um, who was running the place and allowed those interviews to happen. So that, yeah, that was in COVID. And then, um, you know, when things started back up, once we had a safety protocol in place, um, and people felt comfortable doing so, then, you know, production's ramping up, um, and I, I got cast in Toronto, but because of the, the Canadian quarantine, I wasn't able to travel back and forth. So I spent four and a half months up in Toronto for the first two months. Like the city was on pretty strict lockdown. So, so you got to sit in your Toronto hotel, hotel room or go to the hotel bar or well, not even that. No. Well, well I, I had an apartment. Um, the, the cool thing was, I always, when I lived in Chicago, for a while, I thought I wanted to live in a high rise uh, and I couldn't really afford it. Not a, not a decent one when I lived in Chicago. Well, I got to find out. So I spent four and a half months living in a high rise in Toronto. Incredible view right across the street from the Sky Dome. Oh, nice. Of course, there was no baseball until right till the end. I did get to go to a few games. Um, It was a beautiful, beautiful part of the city right in the middle of everything. It just, everything was closed it was locked down so yeah yeah get on the train and go to montreal or somewhere i guess I, that was probably locked down too something tells oh, me. oh all of canada that. was all yeah. of canada that's true they just recently let people back into canada yeah matter of fact yeah. so uh so there's a lot going on for you uh the left right game as well which was a podcast series how did you yeah. become involved in that well, uh, my agent handled Tessa Thompson. He was involved with Tessa's career from the beginning, and Tessa produced that. Okay. Um, and it was really through my the producer of the the guy that put it all together. He w- he didn't know me personally, but he knew my work, 
So I was just, I, I was offered that. Uh, I've done a few things like that, voiceover things, uh, video games and um, and podcasts, but that was quite successful in the podcast world. How do you like um, that kind of work, by the way, when it's just your voice? Well, it's it's fun to do. Um, you know, we, we, we turned that out in three days. I think I was in the studio to do the whole thing. So, you know, that's, that's pretty quick. Um, and uh, I enjoy doing it. It's nothing I want to do full time all the time, but every now and again. Yeah. And there, and it's being developed into, uh, I was just going to ask that a lot of the, the pat, the pipeline now is podcast through streamer to like Netflix or HBO. So who's developing it as a, as a visual. I'm not sure what company they set it up with, Mm. but I know they've set it up. Yeah, of course. There's no, there's no guarantee that uh, you get to play Rob again. Yeah, yeah. That's Um, that's always weird, you know. It's 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 kind of like when you had a stage play and the person who did the role on stage doesn't necessarily get cast in the film. They they, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. So, well, I had that with The Last of Us, the video game, Mm. Um, and they were they were incredibly nice about it. Um, and offered to, to create this other role for me with, um, and I just didn't, I didn't feel comfortable, um, doing that. So they were very nice about it, but it was upsetting (laughs) that I, I created the part that had this huge cultural impact and then I wasn't allowed to play it again. So. That's, you know, that's the game, isn't it? I mean, a lot of it, it's like, uh... You just I, I love the idea though that you know if you share an agent with somebody maybe that's the way to get onto something you know it's it's that's that's pretty interesting but uh, I, I'm and I'm glad again that you are staying busy and there's things going on um, by the way I haven't seen American Sausage standoff yet it's in my queue to watch is it is it worth it watching I mean do you have any opinions on the final product and you know, is it, it entertaining? Is, there are parts of it that are laugh out loud, hurt yourself funny. Mm. Um, it is really weird. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a it's weird a idea for a film. It, it, it's a satire of America made by a European director and writer. It's kind of, you know, his view of, of Heartland America. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, the, the, it, gosh, we shot that. It, it, we shot that a few years ago, and then his post-production team was not available immediately uh, to complete the film. So he had to wait, I think it was nine or ten months, before he could even get the editors that he wanted to start on on the movie. So um, I, I know they went through several cuts, because the, the initial cut was like three and a half hours long. <laughs> yeah. Three they and a half hours down. of American they sausage that was a that was the the assemblage, and uh, he cut it down to about it's about an hour forty five or so. Uh, I saw it. I saw a version at the Santa Barbara Film Festival right before, right when I got back from Canada from the Sandy Bullock movie. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yes, it's the way I describe it is it's very Coen Brothers esque, simply because the Coen Brothers are are had that very dry sense of humor. They have a, a very um, European feel to their comedy. Yes, uh, it, it's a similar similar tone to what the Coens do. So, if that's your thing, it is. Um, go. I, I go all the way back to Blood Simple. I'm a huge Coen oh, Brothers yeah. fan. It, there are only a couple of things I think in their output that you know I wasn't that crazy about. But for the most part, everything they've done, you know, I. I love what they do. I really do. I, I think, uh, you know, a lot of it is uh, introduced new things to, to the language of cinema, you know, and, and they, God knows they could stick a camera just about anywhere. So it's pretty interesting. Um, but the story, you know, I also like this, the, the stories and what goes on. And um, I've been, I'll admit it, I've been to a few Lebowski fests. My wife asked me oh. to please not take her to any another one so i'm probably done with those uh i still feel like uh that was an an oscar worthy performance by both john goodman and jeff bridges and you know long after they're gone i'll still believe that um and i'm looking at my my lebowski action figures right now as i speak to you yeah they're on the shelf just to my right 
I only have the Steve Buscemi uh, character, Donnie. Yeah, I, that's the only one I have. But uh, I, I would imagine you have all of them. I've seen See, some pictures you put up of your your character collection, your action figure collection. It's pretty impressive. I just I have Walter and the dude. I don't have Donnie yet. I, okay, I have to find Donnie. Well, but, uh, I have a Donnie mint in package. <laughs> yeah, I take my stuff out of the package. You do. I'm not unless the package is autographed. Like yeah. I got a I got a Gene Simmons demon, and Ooh. the package is autographed by Gene, so I'm not going to take that out. Well, I am looking at my Psycho Circus uh, Ace Freely autographed by Ace. By the way, <laughs> hanging on the wall over here. So we it's like we complete each other. If we put our collections together. It would complete each other, and who knows if uh, the uh, world would split open. I have no idea. Something like that. I'm talking with W. Earl Brown, and um, uh, we've talked a number of times on the radio, uh, both on Aerial View and when I was at Sirius XM. Uh, last time we spoke was, I think, around the time of uh, the Deadwood film, but then we spoke again after that. Yeah. I recently rewatched the Deadwood movie, by the way, just just because... I wanted to rewatch it, and uh, it, it it it's it struck me as even better on the second viewing. Like the second viewing, there was even more resonance for me with the film. Um, and I know that some of what you did in that production was was left out. Is there going to be another cut? Do you think, or is that the one that we're going to have from here on? I out? was hoping when they released it on Blu-ray, I was hoping that they would include the Milch cut. Yeah. Um, they did not. Okay. So I really don't think we will ever get a chance to see what David entirely envisioned. I, you know, we, I think we spoke about it. I, I understand HBO's concern. The movie had to stand alone, you know, separate from the series. So that someone not knowing it at all needed to be able to tune in and, and understand it. Um, that, and so David's version, although I never saw it, um, I know what David told me and I know what others told me who, who were working on it. It played much more like an episode of the show in as far as the rhythms and stuff. And I know David always hated flashbacks. Um, I thought Dan Minahan found a really good way to make those work in our movie um, because I think HBO's initial attempt were much more literal flashbacks, whereas uh, Dan found a way to make them kind of impressionistic, mm -hmm. like a almost a dream or thought because he, you know, there's a line of owls at the end about something about um, when Trixie's, you know, she's haunted by the memories and he says it's best leave those ghosts alone or something to that effect. Yeah. So, yeah. so he found a way to kind of tie it visually in with, with that piece of advice from Al. So I'm, I'm very pleased. I mean, I, it was still, it was just a blessing to be together with everyone again and to say hello and to say goodbye all at once. And, um, yeah, I was um, I, I I miss those days. Still miss those days. But having the film allowed me to let go because I never could let it go before that. Well, I thought about you when this incident happened. I believe it was a week ago today, October twenty second, on the set of a film called Rust, mm. uh, which Alec Baldwin was starring in and producing. When uh, Lena Hutchins lost her life, the cinematographer on the film, when uh, Alec Baldwin. Uh, drew a revolver uh, and it went off. Um, and at the time was pointed at the camera. The cinematographer, Lena Hutchins, was sitting by the camera, as was the director. And I, I thought about you because of all the weapons, obviously, that was on the set of Deadwood. Deadwood was set in uh, 1870. And so uh, Colt revolvers of the era... Um, there was, I'm sure, an armorer on the set of Deadwood. There were probably a number of people responsible for safe handling of the weapons. And uh, apparently the armorer on the set of Rust was a 24-year-old uh, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed who uh, described her own self as inexperienced. The, the second film she had worked on as an armorer, apparently the daughter of an armorer, which I didn't even know that job existed by the way, mm -hmm. until I started reading these articles, the armorer is the person on the set who is responsible for all the weaponry. And, and I know you went on Twitter, you talked about how shocking this was. And, and I wanted yeah. to speak with you as somebody who has had experience handling a lot of weaponry on a lot of films. What happened here? And 
why did it happen and it, it, what's coming out now about live ammunition being found on the set and a lackadaisical attitude towards safety on the set. What do you know any more than we're finding out? Is, is there about is there, that particular production? No, I'm just yeah. relying on what I see in Variety and Hollywood Reporter and L.A. Times and The Wrap. You know, I know what they've reported because I'm reading every story about it. But yeah, I mean, I, I I've been killed on screen. It's over thirty times now. I think thirty-one, maybe. Um, and and I've killed probably around fifty people on screen. So I've done a lot of gunplay. Um, and if if proto if protocols are followed, everyone is safe. Um, and it just it is outrageous to think of the number of safety protocol steps that were skipped on that movie. I wasn't there. I did not have any direct friends working on it, but I know what I've read. The way protocol works, you, there is a dedicated armorer on set. And the background of that is prior to the early 80s, guns were just props. You know, uh, here's your watch. Here's your wallet. Here's your gun. Here, It, it was just a prop. And then the John Eric Hexum accident, um, he was on the, a show and, and the, the poor guy was ignorant of weapons. He thought blanks were safe. And there was a delay, as I understand it, and, and he just stuck the gun to his head, like out of exasperation, clowning around, um, and he pulled the trigger, and he scrambled his brains and shattered his skull. Um, so they created a the the weapons handler, someone who solely handles any weaponry used on set. If there's a gun, there's a person that is responsible for it. So then. Nine years or so after that was the Brandon Lee accident. And what happened with that, as I understand it, there was a weapons handler who was let go because they were over schedule and they didn't have any more money budgeted. So they let that person go. Well, the weapons remained. The B unit took that pistol out and they were doing an insert shot of an up close of the gun. For inserts, we put dummy bullets in, which are their empty casings, uh, they have a divot in the back where they've been fired. So there's a bullet in the front of it, but there's nothing inside the casing. So they're completely safe. Well, on that movie, one of the bullets came loose out of its casing and was jammed in the chamber of the gun. They hand it back over to a unit who's shooting this scene. They pop the blanks in there. Nobody bothered to check the chamber. Um, and so when the actor who was not who's not coached you don't fire directly at somebody with blanks we do that through camera angles you make it look like you are but you don't well the poor guy didn't know any different he's handed the gun it's safe he pulls the trigger the blank goes off and the bullet which was left over from b unit in the barrel killed brandon lee so that's when protocols got much more strict that was right around the time i was coming into the business um so the way it works is nobody is allowed to touch the weapons except the weapons handler slash armorer. In California, they have to be licensed. Not all states uh, require a license for an armorer. New Mexico does not require a license. Um, with Deadwood, our props master was our armorer, but he handled weaponry completely separate from props. So props would be taken care of. And then when it came time for the guns, they were kept separate handled separately stored separately treated separately so process is the weapons handler checks the barrel of the gun checks the the drum the cylinder um if if when we're rehearsing we use dummy guns we use plastic guns they're they're plastic um and usually uh sometimes we'll have non-firing weapons where the, the chamber's been plugged and the pin's been pulled. So there's no way for them to fire blanks anything, um, but they're real weapons or metal weapons, un inoperable. And then when you have to use real weapons, um, it's checked by the armorer who then goes to the first AD. First AD is in charge of all safety on the set. They're in charge of running everything efficiently, making sure we're on time. They're in charge of safety. So the, the armorer goes to the AD and we go through the process, clear barrel, clear chambers. If we have to load it with dummies, we check every single shell independently. You check the divot, you can shake the, the, the cell and uh, shell, and it there's a rattle inside of it. You can hear, 
There's nothing in it. So each one of those are checked separately. Then the actor is brought over. Sometimes they will clear with the AD and the actor at the same time. But any actor that's in the scene uh, can come and watch this process. But it's gone through with the, the actor who's handling the weapon. So we go through the whole barrel check, dummy check. Now, when we have to fire a blank, they are not loaded until the last minute, until camera is ready. We're ready to shoot the scene, live weapon. So they call out, live weapon. They'll come in, they explain. There will be three shots, quarter loads, coming from Earl's pistol. And they will put the three loads in and then hand it to me and action. And as soon as the scene is done, you hand the weapon back to the armorer. You don't walk off set with your weapon. Nobody gets to play with them or clown around with them. Um, that's the process. And there is no place for live ammunition, live bullets or shells anywhere ever on a movie set. Why? Because they're easy to mix up because a dummy shell looks just like a real shell. Um, you got to pay attention. It's got to have the divot in it. It's got to be an empty casing. So um, every one of those steps, every single one of them was skipped on that movie. So, and yeah. the, this is from October 27th, but the assistant director on the set was someone named Dave Halls, who told the detective, quote, he should have inspected each round in each chamber, yep. according to an affidavit that was released Wednesday, but he did not, unquote. Yep. So is this on him? Uh, look, that's not for me to say. That's for, you know, the, the legal system to handle. Um, it was reported in the rap that crew members were out shooting uh, beer cans with those weapons the morning that the accident happened. That's um, unconfirmed as of now. Uh, it's unconfirmed. It's reported by the rap. Right. It is denied by the armorer's lawyer who says there were no live rounds on the set. Well, we know that's not true because um, there was at least one. Right. So let me ask you, you about it. I mean, the revolver was a 45 long Colt and the cross draw, when you draw across your body that Alec Baldwin was practicing mm -hmm. as he sat in this church pew in this church in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and apparently uh, the shot was with the, the gun pointed towards the camera again. Is it possible this weapon went off without the trigger being pulled, it, that there was some defect or something else happened, or did he pull the trigger? And I, 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 I don't know. Yeah. But, you know, they're single-action revolvers. Which means you have to, to cock the, the, the hammer yourself. Mm -hmm. um, you know, normally don't use real weapons. You still there? So it's now. Yeah. If, can you hear me? Yes. Uh, you know, I mean, I have for, for that purpose. It's okay. I have to draw a weapon. I have to get it clear of my coat. I need the real weapon to feel. So we make sure we clear it. We go through the whole process. We clear it with the AD. We let everybody know on set, you know, it's cold weapon in rehearsals, uh, but that's rare. But I understand why some people might need it in a rehearsal because, again, you got to time it perfectly to get that out. So, you know, I, I don't know. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I, I wasn't asking if you knew whether or not he pulled the trigger. I was wondering if the, that particular model of revolver, if, first of all, if you'd ever handled one or used one, a long forty five yeah, long yeah. Colt. If, if yeah. there was any way it could have inadvertently fired without uh, being cocked and without being without the trigger being uh, triggered, I guess is the word for it. But yeah, of course, not to my knowledge, not to my knowledge or my experience. Yeah. Uh, but that's not to say I'm not the be all and end all on, on the subject. Well, speaking of that, other I, things, you know, speaking of other things that those of us who, who don't work uh, in film and TV for a living wouldn't know. A lot of my friends said to me, can't at this point, can't they CGI this stuff? Why do they need to even have blanks? And, and my first response to that was this was a low budget film. Seven million dollars is apparently the budget for this film. One of the reasons why the armorer and the prop handler apparently were the same person. Usually they're often they're different roles, but as you just said uh, on Deadwood, it was the same person, but 
but that's not the case on Rust. Mm-hmm. There was a prop. There, there was a prop master. Okay. The weapons handler answers to the prop master. It's it's a department underneath the prop master, but her the that woman's whole responsibility was the weapons. She wasn't responsible for anything else, mm-hmm. just the guns. Yeah. Um. So. So. It's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. Um, a, a woman is is dead uh, and leaving behind a nine-year-old son and her husband. Uh, the reverberations, I can imagine, throughout Hollywood are, are vast. I yeah. I don't know if, uh, if they're shutting down this film. The last thing I read is that they may not. They may go ahead and complete this movie. I, I, under, I, I, I'm sorry, go ahead. I I don't see how anyone could uh, or would. Um, so you you ask about the the CGI. Um, it's relatively easy to do that now. Yeah, and has been pointed out to me uh, by the holy anti gun movement. You know, John Wick. They don't have a single blank on that, and that's true. And you I cannot deny how well done it's done with John Wick. Yeah, but that's almost a bullet ballet. You know, right. it's it's not it's not realistic. No, um, in the way that it's handled, I've done stuff like, uh, uh, for example, True Detective. When I am season two, the season everyone disliked, um, I got my <laughs> I got my head blown off. Really? Episode six, I got my head blown off. Yeah, uh, it's a big shootout. Uh, whereas it was actually a setup because they wanted to assassinate me, and there was a sniper shoots me in the head. Well, we had live rounds full rounds uh going off and then the i was given the the mark and then we cgi'd my head exploding so i just act like i'm hit and i drop yeah um on on the movie black mass i'm supposed to it's me and and uh roy cochran and johnny depp and this other character that we're going to assassinate i'm walking behind him i'm supposed to pull a snub nose 38 out of my jacket pocket and pop him in the back of the head well, there was no way to do that safely with a blank at all. So we literally faked that with the first AD standing over to the side and yelling, bang, right when I pulled the thing out. So the guy playing the the, the victim can collapse properly. So and, and then they CGI'd in a bit of gun smoke to make it look realistic. That right. completely worked. But then there's a circumstance like it's not just fire out the body of of are out of the the barrel of the weapon. Um, you know, I, I did this show where I'm supposed to be firing a 50 caliber semi-automatic uh, weapon. And I'm in a prone position and I fire an entire magazine. Well, it's not just fire out of the barrel. It's a 50 caliber gun. And, and it has a cushioning in the stock and it was rippling. I could feel it mm. all through my shoulder and down my arm. So it literally wasn't just me acting like my shoulders kicking. It was reverberating through my whole body. The gas is coming out of the, the, um, the barrel as I'm firing, make my eyes start to water. There's dust kicking up underneath me. That's getting in my face. So all of that stuff kind of played into the realism that I'm actually sitting on that hillside firing that weapon. Um, and and that, that would be hard to do with CGI. I mean, that's a lot of elements there. And, you know, if I'm given the 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 choice um, between you know inoperable weapons, we're completely going to CGI everything, or squibs and and blanks. If squibs and blanks can be safely done, I'm all for. I'm going to take the real ones over the pretend ones. Um, so you know, but th- that's me. I I also grew up around guns, so I'm not nervous handling one. Um, in uh, yep. Murray, Murray, Kentucky, uh, Western yeah. Kentucky, um, Eastern Kentucky was in the news the other day. Apparently, something going on in Hazard at Hi- Hazard yeah. High School that uh, has a lot of people in hot water, namely students uh, giving lap dances to teachers. I I don't know under what cross dressed students, you know, just completely heterosexual. Yes, exactly. Yes, I know. It's just that was, I, one, of, that was one of the comments I read in a news report on it. But heterosexual now. Yes, I now I want a Hazard High School T-shirt. Is all I can say. Um, but uh, so you you grew up around guns, and and they don't give you the same uh, like I. 
You know, in my store up in Saugerties, I have I have a cap gun for sale in the display case. It's a Hubley cap gun from the 1950s that looks like pretty much the first Colt. And it, people walk in and they think it's a real gun. And they actually, like, mm-hmm. back away from the showcase. They go, oh, oh, a real gun. Is this a gun for sale? And I'm like, under what conditions do you think I would be selling a real weapon in my antique store up in Saugerties, New York. That would never happen. It, it's, it, I have finally had to make a sign for it that said, this is not a real gun. This is a cap gun. And put that up there. So yeah, there's a lot of people leery. I didn't, by the way, I didn't grow up around guns unless they were rifles. My dad was a hunter. Uh, we didn't really have any handguns around in the house unless it was a pellet gun, a crossman, or a daisy. That was about it. And... My brother had a 22. Uh, there wasn't anything other than that around, so I can't make the same claim. But it's amazing with the number of films that come out and the number of guns in those films and a number of the number of films that are based around guns somehow. You mentioned John Wick. John Wick 4, I think, is the latest one out and the yeah. one where Keanu gave everybody a Rolex uh, after the film wrapped. Uh, no, well, they're, shoot, they're shooting right now, I think. They're shooting uh, John Wick 5, I would imagine. I guess it's 5 now, because McShane's over in England, I know. I'm He's way, over there I'm way behind. I, I only saw John Wick 1. I'm, I'm so far yeah. behind, I'll never get caught up. But the with the number of, of films, with the number of, with the amount of weaponry, it's been it's been ha- handled pretty safely, right? I mean, this is the, the yeah. exception. The, the last few things I read about on the sets of movies did not involve weaponry. They involved accidents. They involved vehicular accidents and other things happening, but not weaponry. So, well, I I can re- I'm trying to remember. I, I actually pulled up my IMDb to try to remember which production it happened on, and I can't remember. But I remember being on a set. And because the first AD's got to make his day, you know, we got to get all the shots listed. Now, that's another thing on Rust. They had their camera crew had walked off and they had to bring a replacement non-union crew in. So they were way behind on their day. They weren't going to make their day. Um, But I was on a set where the first AD was rushing things. And I can remember the handler, the armorer said, excuse me, you will not rush this process. And the next time that you attempt to do so, I will walk off this set and I will take the weapons with me. Understand? Hmm. You know, that's what the armorer has to do. You know, you safety comes first beyond anything and everything else. Um, and right. uh, that's not what happened with that movie. So. Well, this story, there's a story going around about this this 57-year-old veteran prop handler who, who turned down the job on that film, yeah, that. saying yep. that he found their whole approach to safety to be seriously lacking. But it's funny, I, thanks for mentioning the, the camera crew walking off, because that is going to play into this somehow. I, it seems like it may already have, but it's, it's definitely something that... Well, probably had had an impact no there had been two previous discharges on the set you know yeah the first time the first time that an unplanned discharge goes off on a set that person's fired Mm. you're gone you're out yeah you know they were blanks they weren't real bullets unlike this time they were blanks but it was still cold gun was declared and then you hand over a hot gun hot gun means it's got a blank in it yeah um there were two of those, two. So I, I just can't fathom, like you've already had two mishaps of which you have not replaced the person in overseeing those mishaps. Um, it just, it, 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 yeah, completely lackadaisical attitude toward something that was deadly. Now, we've talked this long. We haven't mentioned Alec Baldwin yet. So I, I wanted to ask about what this what this does to him and by that i mean uh, does does he at this point say you know i i don't think i can do this anymore i've got to walk away from this is this the kind of thing that ends a career and uh, i i i don't i i I, I don't want you to i mean i know it's we're just speculating here but i i'm wondering what you thought when you heard this is that it for him 
can't speak to that. I, mm. I don't know. Yeah. Um, you know, it, uh, I, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. Yeah. Anybody. Um, the fact that, you know, uh, that happened. I, I have I have a, a, a degree of pity for the actor. Yeah. You know, you're trying to create a scene. You're trying to make it believable. You're by it. So I, I have a degree of empathy there. I do not have a degree of empathy with any producers that allow um, discharge, accidental discharges to happen on their set and don't do anything about it. So the culpability may be on the producing side for him. If there's uh, criminal civil trials, he's going to be found culpable in some regard for what you just mentioned. The, the discharges, two of them that happened without any being fired or otherwise being addressed they didn't have safety meetings you're also anytime that you have anything that's difficult or or, or dang, potentially dangerous on a set you start the day with the safety meeting um you explain this is what we're going to be doing today at, at one o'clock we're going to be dropping this car in the junkyard and we will be shooting it live so and then before the stunt is done it's then there it's explained to everybody yeah. So to the reportage that I've seen on that movie, they never had a single safety meeting, even after discharges went off, you know. Uh, would this be a union thing, by the way? I mean, is it was a lot of what happened in New Mexico because it was a mix of union and non-union? Would, would well, if this have been a union the, film? Would, would there have been a mandatory safety meeting? Yeah, there's supposed, yes. Okay. Um, as I understand it, their set crew was non-union from the beginning. Their yeah. set decorators and all of that stuff. The camera crew was union. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are the ones that walked off. Only um, Helena and uh, one of her camera ops who had worked with her in all of her films, they were the only two that stuck around. The, the other people walked off because they, they had not gotten their paychecks yet. They were told they were supposed to have a, a hotel in Santa Fe. They didn't have it. They were having to drive home to Albuquerque. Um and they were pulling long hours, and then there was disregard for safety. So that's why they walked off. Talking with W. Earl Brown about onset safety in light of the recent incident on the set of the film Rust, which was filming in Santa Fe, New Mexico, when Helena Hutchins uh, lost her life. Uh, 47 years old, I believe, and left behind a nine-year-old child and her husband, also the uh, director on the film, um, no, she was 42. The director was 48, or is 48. Uh, Souza is his last name, uh, who was struck in the shoulder. That's how they recovered the bullet. It apparently embedded itself in him. It went through her and hit him. Yeah. I so that, that's how they know this was an actual round and not anything else. Uh, you mentioned earlier uh, John Eric Hexum, who... Uh, killed himself with a blank because of blunt force trauma, essentially. But this was a projectile. So now they're trying to figure out how these projectiles got on the set. This is going to, this is going to be a long process. And, and in the end, uh, there may be a number of people who are going to have to face some kind of responsibility for this. Do you, I mean, is anyone actually going to go to prison? Do you think what, what is, have people I, gone to prison before for things like this w- w- involving well, there, onset safety? There was on the, the Greg Allman biopic seven years ago um, when they were shooting on a railroad track that they did not have permission to do so. Um, and they told their crew they did. They told them it was safe. Um, the producer director was sentenced to two years in jail. He spent one year um, and is out. So, um Yeah. And a woman uh, lost her arm in that accident, didn't she? I mean, yeah, there, yeah one of the stunt people. There were several people, yeah. several people that were that were hurt. Yeah, yeah. because a train came along, basically. Yeah, That's what, you know. Uh, oh yeah, they're on a railroad trestle over a river, um, and and they were told they told the crew it's safe. There's no trains come through here. It's safe. Right. And they had not gotten. It was a live track. They had not gotten permission to be there. They did not have permits to be there. Uh, you know, they were claiming production hadn't started yet. This was pre-production. This was going to be some B-roll footage. Um, what what angered me about that is there's footage of w- one of the other producers at a film festival only weeks before that accident bragging about how they uh, they cut corners. 
you know, they do what they got to do to get the shot. Is that and, part uh, of the problem is this idea of like guerrilla filmmaking that we are just, we don't need permits. We're just going to go and we're going to get the shot and whatever it takes. I mean, yeah. yep. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's all fine and dandy when you're just being a renegade. Yeah. But yeah. God damn it. When there's, you know, when something is that dangerous, something that kills people. Yeah. Um, there's no movie worth that. None. So, you know, you, you may wear it as a point of pride. I do what I got to do to get my shot. Yeah. Um, again, fine and dandy if it's your ass that's going to be going over the cliff, but not anybody else's. Yeah. So, I mean, who was it? Was this Fastbinder or Herzog who said I would march into hell and snatch the film from the devil's hands myself? You're not Fastbinder or Herzog as far as I can tell. So maybe some safety protocol is called for and... The I think the other thing I mentioned the seven million dollar budget is is there any culpability in that were they were they underfunding this this production? I mean I I can't say without seeing the the script itself. First mm. of all, seven million is not exactly a micro budget movie. Mm. Okay, so I, I've worked on movies with with less budget than that. Um, so, but again, it depends on the scope of the movie and how much how big it is and how much you have to film. They were on a 21-day schedule, which is pretty tight um, to shoot a, a two-hour movie. Yeah. that's As a matter of fact, that's really tight. Um, you know, most yeah. of them are around two months, not a month. Wow. All right. Well, I before we run out of time entirely, I got to ask you if you can give us any sneak previews about The Mandalorian, what happens next, and whether or not you'll be part of it. I cannot tell you, you that. You cannot tell me that. Okay. So I'm going to take that as a yes, that you're going to be Luca, in the next. Lucasfilm, <laughs> Disney. Let me just say the NDA is really thick. There's yeah. a lot of pages to that non-disclosure agreement. Right. So I cannot um, say anything in regard to the Book of Boba Fett, which comes out December of 2020. And your wife uh, works for them, right? So does that mean you can't talk about this stuff around the house either? Or both of you? No. Like, Yeah. Okay. She knew. Well, the story on Mando, I started the day before the show premiered. They'd already started shooting season two. And um, they only send you the scenes you're in. You don't get the whole script. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, John and Dave kind of fill you in as to what the story is. Well, I knew that Oliphant had been cast, and and I know Pedro. Of course, I know Tim. And it said the child. So I just think it's a child actor, right? Yeah. So we're there. Yes. We're shooting. We're, we're there that morning. And, of course, Tim, I'm behind the bar, and he walks over, and I went, you ought to pin that badge on your chest. You're just hypocrite enough to wear a cocksucker, yeah. which is a line from Deadwood. And then he throws me a line of Deadwood back because everybody starts laughing that knows Deadwood and Favreau mm. comes up. John goes, oh, my God, I, I absolutely idolize Milch, and I love that show. I, I did not consciously think that I was recreating Deadwood in mm. space. Yeah, He said, we pointed to Tim, and he went, we hired you. And I told casting, I said, get Earl Brown to play uh, the weak way. Mm. Um, and he goes, I, I, I subconsciously created Deadwood. Well, okay, well, let's, let's rehearse. Well, I'm, it, as he's saying this, props guy comes in with a cart, and there's a baby Yoda on the cart. <laughs> And I thought, oh, that's so cute. Mm. The props guy went and made himself a little baby Yoda. That's the darling. Okay, let's rehearse. Well, I'm still looking around like, well, where the hell's the child? Where? So Pedro walks in. Well, there's a puppeteer operating a, a baby Yoda puppet. So I get home that night. And I'm like, oh, my God. Because Star Wars is what made me want to be in movies. And I'm, I'm prattling on and on and on and on and on and on. And I said, there's a baby Yoda. It's like a Yoda, except it's a little baby Yoda. And my wife just kind of gets this grin on her face. And I went, you knew. You knew all along, didn't you? Yes. And she said, you're not the only one with an NDA. Wow. So the next day, the next day, Mando premieres. And then baby Yoda is everywhere. Everywhere. It blew up. Listen, we're out of road. Earl, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you again for doing this. Appreciate it. And uh, wow, uh, that hour went by so fast. I don't know where it went, but this show will replay. 
on uh, Tuesday at 6 p.m. Stay here. More hound shows in mere moments here on the houndnyc.com.